for choosing the podcast of LifePoint Church in Ozark, Missouri. LifePoint is a body of believers led by God's Spirit to engage in His redemptive mission in the world. We love Jesus and desire to serve Him by leading people to be real Christ followers in life together. We hope that this message will be a blessing and an encouragement for your life. If you would like more information about LifePoint Church, please visit us on the web at www.lifepointozark.com. First Corinthians chapter 7. We are in a series entitled United Together in the Gospel. And in this series, we are talking about and laboring for one thing. How it is that we live as a people united in the gospel of Jesus Christ for kingdom impact. We've talked about this, that unity fuels God's people for kingdom Mission, And we're, we're at an interesting intersection in the book of 1 Corinthians. Because before now, Paul has been laying a foundation for unity. And he's been laying a foundation for how it is that God, by His Spirit, brings unity among His people. But beginning with chapter 7, he turns and begins to build on these principles, these foundational truths that he's established, and he begins to make specific applications throughout the remainder of the book for how it is that God builds on the unity of his people to apply the gospel in every and any situation and circumstance in their life. And in keeping very much so with the last several weeks, uh, he starts with one of the most difficult topics to engage in all of life. And so I want to stop and pause for just a moment this morning and ask you to be praying in this sermon for two things. First of all, pray for me. Pray that my words would be seasoned with grace and love and pray that they would be conditioned only by the Spirit of God through the cross of Jesus Christ. Secondly, pray for your own heart. That wherever you are today, God would soften your heart to receive his word by faith and be ready to follow him in the way that the Spirit of God convicts you, both of sin that may be present in your life and of righteousness in which he wants to lead you in. Now, I would argue that's a great prayer to pray at any time a sermon is about to be preached, but it's necessary for today, friends. And you'll see in just a moment. 1 Corinthians 7 begins with a section as Paul addresses situations of life and applies the gospel to them. Here's what I want you to walk away with for today. My aim for today is for you to understand that Christians serve God's kingdom faithfully when they live as they are called by God. Christians serve God's kingdom faithfully when they live as they are called by God. And he begins chapter 7 by addressing confusion in life over what I'll call the relational status of life and how it is that we live this out. There are no few shortages of misunderstandings and confusion over how a Christian is to live in their body. And we see this time and time again in the New Testament. And in the, in the city of Corinth, 
the Corinthians were taking all kind of confusion coming out of their life before Christ and their sinful practices and habits and trying to apply the gospel in this new life. But because of competing philosophies and ideologies, they were creating all kinds of of wacky living scenarios. And Paul is trying to bring some clarity to these situations. And this situation that we confront today is no exception to what he is doing. He's helping them to think about life and about their relational status from a biblical or what we would call a word-shaped perspective and a gospel-centered or what we would call or have called a cross-forged perspective. So let's go to chapter 7 and I want to begin by reading the first five verses as we begin this morning. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Let's pause there for a moment as we begin to walk through this passage. Paul provides a principle that identifies one of God's six purposes for marriage. And he says this, first of all, that marriage is a God-ordained relationship between a man and a woman. He makes this very clear. There is no other category, there is no other alignment, and there is no other arrangement, biblically speaking, under which marriage can be defined. Typically, I wouldn't have had to lay that out, but in our world today, as in the world in Corinth of this day, it's important that we understand where the Bible speaks. Then, he gives one of God's primary purposes for marriage. Sexual intimacy in marriage protects the man and woman against the temptation to immorality by the roles of wife and husband. These are roles, titles for those roles that hold a specific purpose in God's design of marriage to protect the accompanying spouse against sexual temptation and immorality. And he goes on in verses 3 through 5 to provide wise counsel in order order to, to fight the temptation that will inevitably come. Now, let's state the obvious here that is silent, but it's inherent, it's implied. Sexual temptation will continue to come when you are married. And if you are not married and you think being married will in some way remove the sexual temptation that you now have, listen clearly to what I will say today. It will not remove it. 
So don't have some pie in the sky understanding of what will be one day when. Here's what Paul says in verses 3 through 5. That a husband and a wife, these two roles, they hold a mutual responsibility for each other in marriage. And he says this, the conjugal rights. That word for conjugal is literally a word that means obligation or debt. And it's accompanied by a verb that means to give up or to yield, to offer, if you, if you will. And so a husband and a wife owe an obligation to their spouse to offer themselves to one another for spiritual health. Therefore, that makes the following a biblical statement. When I say to my wife, baby, I'm here for your spiritual good. It's probably best for my health that she's out with a sick son today so I won't end up in the doghouse tonight. And if I wanted to know I said that, I'll tell her myself. We all agree, right? Listen, these are important. First of all, responsibility is placed on each spouse to offer themselves, not take from to offer themselves to the other. And accordingly, accountability is also placed on each spouse. That their spouse holds authority over how they use their body. And that would transcend even the sexual activity of the relationship. And so husband and wife use their bodies. That's what Paul is talking about here. They use their bodies to help their husband or their wife. And, and, and not to use it in some means of disagreement with the other. Also, even when one spouse acts sinfully, the other spouse is not released from personal responsibility. In other words, your responsibility, husband or wife, is not contingent on the faithfulness of your spouse. God places that responsibility upon you. It's yours, regardless of what anybody else in the world says or does, specifically your spouse. You're never released from personal responsibility, nor are you justified in any personal sinful Activity. Look, here's the general principle. Sin is never atoned or justified by a corresponding responsive sin. Rather, it's only increased and multiplied. What I'm saying is, one spouse's sin never justifies another spouse to go sin. Sexual intimacy is a responsibility and an accountability for purity and for spiritual health. In marriage. Now, Paul offers one exception to this command, verse 5. It's important for us. He says it would be acceptable if you agreed to abstain for devotion in order to pray, or I would even say for spiritual focus. But he says only for a season. And, and I would offer that Paul's inference here is that season should be a short season. Not like the fall that we've had over the last eight months. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it should be a short season. Why? Because you should limit it so that you can return 
so that Satan will not exploit that season for his purposes. And what you originally devoted to God can be stolen by Satan. I don't know about you, friends, but when I think about Paul's one concession here, this makes amen the greatest word in all the world, right? Think about it. When amen gets said, the season is over. That's, come on, that was a better joke than that. Okay, all right, I'll keep moving. I'm trying to lighten the mood. We haven't even gotten to the hard stuff yet. Sex was created and given by God to serve His purpose in the world. Christians submit to God through a sexual ethic that serves His eternal purposes. And so Satan has no opportunity to tempt towards immorality. Sexual intimacy in your marriage, friends, is a guard against Satan's temptations and attacks. It's a part of your artillery to holiness in marriage. Now there's confusion regarding marriage, and when confusing, confusion surrounds marriage, it creates greater confusion regarding all relational statuses in this world. And so what Paul does is he begins to provide commands and counsel for all God-honoring relational statuses like marriage, like singleness, like the widowed, separation and divorce and engagement. I mean, if you want to just talk about a chapter of the Bible that covers it all, right? Just put everything difficult. I mean, I can think of one or two other things. You know, we could talk about money and throw that in here, but it, it's actually included if you think about the principles we'll talk about. But Paul begins with an important concession. Look at verse 6 and verse 7 and what he says here. He says this, Now, as a concession, not a command. That's an important distinction, friends. That's an important distinction. A command, you have no option, okay? A concession demands spiritual discernment for your life. And that's important. And so you need to understand what he is saying. I say this, he says, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another Concession here means this. It does not negate marriage, which is a creational command that Paul will use to establish marriage. But rather, he's saying this, that singleness should be held in equal yet distinct honor. And this is an important, important truth for us to understand in our day and time, when the age, average age of marriage continues to increase in a world and the understanding of marriage continues to plummet in the world around us, surely we will see more and more adults who are choosing to remain single and as such, when they come into the kingdom of God, it may be that they remain that way. We as a church need to understand singleness in life in a way that we all too often holistically have not accepted it yet. 
I don't think anyone has necessarily intentionally relegated it, but sometimes systematically we've done that. Paul says, I wish all were as I am, and that is, he was referring to his status of being single. But he acknowledged that singleness is a gift from God. And gifts, there are different gifts, there are different kinds of gifts, and there are different measures of gifts to each person that God gives. And so Paul encourages any who are single to consider remaining single, not as an absolute command, but as a recognition that singleness is good. It's not a holding pattern for something that might come that's better. Which is often the way that even single people regard it. You see, marriage that guards is greater than singleness that burns with immoral passions. That's what Paul is saying. He's not saying marriage is better than singleness. But he's saying if you are single and you burn with immoral passion, you should get married so that you can guard yourself from the fire in your heart of immorality. Too often a bloated view of marriage makes singleness an undesirable disease of some sorts. But what does Paul say? He says it's a divine gift. A high regard for marriage, biblically speaking, honors singleness as a gift from God. And he goes on to say that marriage actually comes with more commands as the most important relationship between two people on earth. And he clarifies this, that, that marriage doesn't transcend our time on earth. Verses 39 and 40, he talks about a husband or a wife are released from their covenant of marriage when their spouse passes away. But on earth, a wife should not separate from nor a husband divorce his wife. Now this command is functionally the same for the husband and the wife because in the day in which Paul wrote, a wife could not divorce her husband. She could only separate from him. And a husband had to divorce the wife. And so in this scenario, this command is functionally the same for the husband and the wife. But separation and divorce, he goes on to say, are not desirable and should not be intentionally pursued. And... He doesn't give a whole council perspective on this, but what he states about divorce and marriage is in agreement with the whole council of God's word. He says this, that scriptural allowance that concedes a divorce only recognizing the hardness of the heart through sin. You see, Christians must understand that biblical allowance for divorce is never equal to a biblical recommendation for divorce. From a biblical perspective, divorce is never recommended. And to qualify that, I would point you to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, verse 32, and also Jesus' words in chapter 9 and verse 19. Now hear me, I want to make an important statement about this because this is a very difficult topic in our day and time I'm not talking about your past today and the only reason your past if it involved a divorce would be on the table for application today 
would simply be if you've never applied the gospel to it for forgiveness and cleansing in your life. I don't have time to cover the gamut of divorce today. But hear me in what I am saying. If you are married today and you are considering divorce, I am speaking to you. Whether anyone knows it or it's only hidden still in your heart. Paul explains more scenarios that tend toward divorce. He says this, a man and a woman should not divorce an unbelieving spouse. In other words, if your husband or wife are not believers, but you become a believer... You should live with them because being a believer, while it is a biblical qualification for marriage, he goes on to explain that in his next letter, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14, unbelief is never a biblical justification for divorce. Paul justifies his command and he says this in verse 14 of chapter 7. He says, you don't know but that the unbelieving spouse may be made holy because of the believing spouse. And the full meaning of made holy here is difficult to know. But what we do know about it and what it does infer is that those who are holy, who are set apart to God, carries a blessing that flows out. And that includes not only the spouse, but the children. It carries into that home through the believer. You do not know and you cannot discern nor determine how God will use you. You should therefore remain. It doesn't mean they'll be saved because of a believing spouse. But hear me, friends. In the divine wisdom of God, it is very near to that understanding in the way that we should apply it. So if you're here today and you live with an unbelieving spouse, you keep praying your face off for their personal salvation and you trust that God will do His work in their heart through your faithful obedience to Him. A Christian spouse holds a strong, strong influence for the gospel in that home. But he does say this, that if the unbelieving spouse separates, the Christian spouse may and even should accept this in order to live in peace. You see, Christian faithfulness is a greater motivation for godliness than marital happiness. Christian faithfulness is a greater motivation for godliness than marital happiness. You cannot fix your marriage and then think you can just pick up with God wherever you left off when you veered away from God to go try and win your spouse. Follow God and trust His plan. No two people need to hear this counsel more today than those who are about, or those who are engaged, or those who are about to be engaged. In all the premarital counseling I've done in my life, you can look into their eyes and they're not hearing a word you say. Talk to us, Pastor. We we really want to know what's going to make this marriage last for a lifetime. But we just love each other. Oh, my gosh. 
And here's what I feel like. Blah, 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 blah. Wah, 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 Okay, yeah. You know, I mean, you're just like, wow, would you listen? I'm going to see you in a year, and I'm going to repeat to you what I just said. And you're going to be going, I wish you had told us this before. And I'm going to say, I did. At least inside, I'm going to say that. I want to bring two specific applications to us as a church. I'm talking to LifePoint right now about these first seven verses. Applications we should never forget. Singleness, whether for a season or whether for a lifetime, should be honored in this church as a gift from God. That is far too often not said in the church. Gifts do not come without hardships or absent of challenges, but that does not make them less than a gift. For life point, this means that single adults who seek to follow Jesus faithfully should be honored and recognized for their gift to our family. If you are single, living faithfully to follow Jesus, hear me, we honor you. We honor you. If you desire to marry or if you struggle with passion, then marry. Then marry. We will honor your marriage as well. But know this, marriage multiplies problems. It does not remove them. See, Jesus is Lord over the gift of singleness as He is Lord over the covenant of marriage. Marriage, I will say to those who are married, should be fully submitted to Jesus' Lordship first, not your preferences first. Marriage is more about strengthening your holiness, not only more, but also before it is to serve your happiness. If marriage is rough right now and you are considering separation or divorce, please listen to me carefully. I'm going to make a couple of hard statements and I'm going to make a strong appeal to you. No matter how bad or how wrong you think your marriage is, do not walk out. A Christian man does not walk away from his wife. A Christian wife does not walk away from her husband. Christians never create reasons They never coerce situations or manipulate circumstances to justify a separation and a divorce. Men and women who are submitted to Jesus' lordship stay committed to their marriage with their spouse. Hear me, when you stray from your spouse, you are straying from Jesus. Not because they are Jesus, but because you're in covenant under Jesus with them. If you see no way your marriage can survive, 
Do not move in any direction until you've heard clearly from Jesus. And then, and only then, follow Him by faith. And if divorce is on the horizon for you, if this is what you believe about your marriage, immediately and fully submit to biblical leadership so that wise, clear counsel can walk you through this and condemnation not be heaped upon your head if, in fact, divorce is the inevitable foregone conclusion of your marriage. As I said, there is biblical allowance. There is not biblical recommendation for divorce. It's a heavy teaching. The last several weeks have been, if I'm just going to be quite honest with you, And Paul moves quickly through this portion of the chapter. Seven verses. Seven verses. And really, 16 verses, if if we just take all of the other concessions and commands that he's given, quickly he moves. And and he moves almost with with minimal explanation. Come on, man. We, We need more than just that. But listen, he's addressing a situation. And I think it causes us to take this. and And we need to pause. And we need to ask ourselves simply this. What? is taking place among all of these commands, these concessions, these concerns, and this counsel that he's doling out. Man, the the gospel is about real life, friends. It's about the life and the abundant life that Jesus came to give you. And the gospel never skirts the difficulties of your life, nor the complexities of your life, nor the minutia of the details of your life that you just can't figure out and want to gloss over and move on. That's what Paul's doing here. He's bringing all of the difficulties, specifically of relational statuses in life and the complexities that they have brought about that confront us. And he's doing this. He's navigating these complexities that confront us with a theological seriousness instead of, hear me, as the people in Corinth were doing and as we do today, instead of making determinations based on our complexities of life, life that end up defining our faith that were based on personal comforts, personal preferences, pleasures, and conveniences. Here's what we typically do, and we read God's Word, and we go, God, I just don't see how that is possible for my life. And instead of looking at the cross of Christ and seeing the forgiveness and the truth that he brings to us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ and going, God, though I don't see it, I will submit my life to you and you can lead me. We'll go, God, I'm going to find a way. And when I get out of it, I'll find you on the other side. You can't do that, friends. You didn't find God to begin with and there's no guarantee you'll find him. If, in fact, you do walk out unscathed from that situation. But you will not be unscathed. Here's why. Because it demands sin for you to walk away and stray from God to begin with. Let alone to end in. You see, here's the point. Relational statuses do not determine whether or not you can serve God. 
whether you are married, whether you are single, whether you're in a hellacious kind of relationship that you know as married, or whether you are in some other kind of situation that you don't know if you can serve God by obeying His truth. But there are clear commands and faithful applications so that you can live in obedience. And that's what Paul does in verses 17 to 24. There, go there with me. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. And that word for rule is command. A rule is a command applied to life. For your good, for God's glory. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. You see, relational status only rightly, is only rightly understood when it serves God's purpose in the world. And I want to provide a way for you this morning to understand Paul's application with the perspective with which he unifies his teaching in verses 17 to 24. This is critical. If I could say this, this chapter is really not about singleness and marriage and divorce, but he makes the application there. That's the situation that he steps into and addresses, but he raises the perspective to look at all of these things and all of life. I want you to return once again to this main point for today's message as we move into three principles to apply in order to see this perspective that Paul is providing for us. Christians serve God's kingdom faithfully when they live as they are called by God. You see, sometimes we say you can't see the forest for the trees, right? That means that we lose sight of the big picture when we become consumed with the details. And life has a larger picture than only even the most important details of your life. But surely relational status can become an all-consuming detail that blinds and even distracts or deceives a person. I've watched so many become consumed with a bad marriage or not being married and just simply walk away from God because they can't see how God's truth could ever become reality for their life. But friends, the only way to glorify God is to keep relational status in life in light of God's right perspective of his will and purpose for your life. And that's what Paul is getting to. I want to give you three principles this morning that he sets forth in verses 17 to 24. And it will cover everything we've talked about in the first 16 verses. And everything that uh, uh, covered, is covered in the remainder of the chapter. The first principle is this. Be available. 
These principles help you take your Christian identity that Paul has already explained and apply them into action and the doing of your life. You see, Christians live available to serve God by leading the life that God has given them. Available is a positional reality of your salvation. And it demonstrates Jesus' lordship over you. God, wherever I'm at, whoever is with me, whatever the status of my relationship in life right now is not greater than your purpose and will for my life, I submit myself to serve you and to serve you fully. You see, Christians don't wait till some point in time or some accomplishment in life in order to serve God. External circumstances and socioeconomic status, these are all worldly labels that we place on ourselves. And they never determine nor increase one's ability to serve God. God uses those that he calls. No matter your circumstance, no matter your status. It is no surprise to God what you've been through. It's no surprise to God where you are. He brings glory by redeeming your past and giving persevering strength for faithful obedience in your presence. No matter your status, be available. Accept God's call for your life. To live for his glory because Christians believe that because God has saved them, he purposes to use them for his will and for his work in the world. You see, serving God's kingdom is every Christian's highest aim. Paul doesn't uh, reduce the meaning of marriage, but he does explain all these relational statuses through a gospel-centered, kingdom-minded purposefulness. Marriage, as with any relational status, is neither your highest honor, your highest achievement, nor even your highest holiness. Following Christ is not dependent upon your marriage, but your marriage is dependent upon your faithfulness to Christ in all things. All things. And hear me, friends, because this is too often the reality today. Marriage and family become idolatry when we use God to make them good, to make us happy through them, instead of using our marriage and our family to make God's name known. You take the good that God has given to you and you try to make it God. Are you available where you are? Today? Or are you distracted? Yea, even deceived by the details of your circumstance and drifting from God. God never calls people to be able, He is able. His glory is never dependent on our greatness to serve Him. He is great. God commands that we be available, that we live the life He has given us to live, to serve Him. The second principle I offer you today is not only be available, 
but be obedient. Verses 18 through 23, Paul tells the Corinthians, let nothing get in the way of obedience in serving God. Do you see how Paul really expands it? He's talking about uh, um, ethical, or not ethical, excuse me, ethnical uh, um, uh, identifiers and qualifiers. You could say racial qualifiers in that. He broadens the scope from just relational status. He even broadens it from uh, life status to, uh, are you a bondservant? And so he says, look, this applies to all of us. Don't focus on getting cleaned up. Don't focus on getting washed off. Don't focus on getting flushed out. Don't focus on getting your marks removed or your outward rituals completed before coming to Jesus. Let nothing hinder nor halt your obedience in serving God. Nothing. Focus. Focus right here. Are you ready? Every day, focus on obedience to God. That is God's will for your life, wherever you are, whomever you are with, whatever you are doing, focus on obedience by faith. God knows the sin of your heart and the problems of your life. He knows them better than you do. And he knows there's nothing you can do about it without him. He washed you. That's what we saw last week. He washed you in the blood of Jesus Christ. He will equip you and prepare you for what he calls you to. You see, sin that lingers, he'll lead you through repentance to greater redemption. And sin that tempts you, he will show his provision for your escape. That's what he promises to us a little later in chapter 10, verse 13. It says, every time temptation knocks on your door, God will show you a bridge, a way of refuge that you might go and hide up underneath it until temptation moves on. The question is, are you looking for God's way out? Are you looking for your way in? Jesus, Psalm 46.1, He is your only safe refuge. The storm outside of Him is greater than you can stand. Hear me, friends. God uses your obedience through faithful service To work out his righteousness in you. Getting ahead in life is not a prerequisite to serve God faithfully or better. Wherever you are, whatever you do, and whomever you are with, serve God right now and right here. And he will lead you where he's calling you. Are you focused on obedience by faith? I'm going to tell you a story about Tim Clark. Tim was born a triple amputee. He was born with one arm. He was missing an arm and two legs. He was working as an accountant as an adult. And a co-worker came up to him one day who was a former collegiate diver. And he asked him if he would like to swim in the 50 freestyle race that was coming up in their region up in Kansas City. And You can imagine the question Tim asking, being fully aware of of his situation. He said, are you crazy? Literally, I'm quoting Tim right here. He said, are you crazy? I was born with only one arm and without legs. That's a direct quote. But something inside of Tim made him believe that that's what God wanted him to do. And so he started meeting his co-worker at the pool every morning. For four months, he trained with this co-worker. 
And when the day for the race came, Tim swam the 50 freestyle in 43 seconds. He placed third in a six-man heat of able-bodied men. Yeah! I mean, I know what it's like to hit the water and sink, you know what I'm saying? But I mean, like, where did you come in fifth? The guy in front of me was, he was a great swimmer. The guy in front of him was a triple amputee swimming with one arm. That's no small feat. And he said after he experienced that, he, he didn't really know what was going on, but he believed God wanted him to write a book and just tell his story. And you'll find that book today on the internet. And do you know what the title of it is? I'll give you a hint. With God, all things are possible. That's classic. Look it up. Not right now. I know some of you think that what God's telling you is just not doable by you. And I tell you, that means it's probably God speaking it to you. The question is, will you be obedient? God brings his will to fruition for your life through faithful obedience in your life. The third principle I offer to you today begins in verse 24. It really covers the remainder of the chapter, which we'll not read, but it's simply this. Be undivided in your devotion to God. Be undivided in your devotion to God. Paul returns to this one defining guide for heart and mind in how we should live. Verse 24, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain with God. No matter your condition or status in life, remain with God commands a singular focus to avoid disobedience by distraction it's never a denial of loneliness it's never a denial of hardship it's never a denial of fear or struggles or it's never uh, some guarantee that all of these things will go away but remain with God means a Christian holds a single aim for undivided devotion to God and here's what he says with two counsels first of all he says the way you hold an undivided devotion to God is through an eternal perspective over your life that's what he tells us time in this world is very short but like a mist James says we don't afford the luxury to substitute God's purpose for our personal agendas but God's sovereignty means that every situation every status and every circumstance serves eternity you see an eternal perspective means that we stop asking how can God serve me and instead we begin to ask how can I how can my marriage how can my family how can my home serve God and his eternal purposes in the world that's an eternal perspective and whatever is going on in your life right now it is no surprise to God and it is never and not beyond God Christians hold an eternal perspective over all of life in order that we might bring an eternal significance and an eternal glory to every moment of our life. And the second thing he says is this, if you want to hold an undivided devotion to God, you cannot let anxiety divide your devotion. 
You see, anxiety is the greatest perpetrator that violates a Christian's eternal perspective. Anxiety always arises when we substitute worldly values for godly wisdom, when we make good things to be God. And nowhere is this more possible than in relational statuses of marriage or in our sexual intimacy within marriage. Let me give you one example that, or excuse me, one illustration that provides multiple examples of how anxiety causes us to walk with God by name, but not with God in obedience. Listen, a friend recounts, he's a pastor, and he was teaching through 1 Corinthians, and when he got to chapter 7, he shared that if you burn with passion, you should just get married. I mean, it's just straightforward what Paul says. And after his teaching, a, a, a parent, some parents came up to him afterwards and, and aggressively confronted him because they had been encouraging their son and their girlfriend to wait until after grad school. And here's the reason they gave. Because graduate degree was their best hope to get ahead in the world. And so my pastor friend looked at the son who was standing there with his parents and said, well, that's fine as long as they can remain sexually pure. And at that moment, the countenance of the parents and the son changed. Silence fell on all three of them and they walked away. You see, the parents believed that a little sexual promiscuity before marriage was acceptable as long as they got ahead with graduate school. And what were the son and his fiance to think? Mom and dad are okay with it. Don't want to go against them. They might be paying a bill. You see, anxieties make it impossible to honor and obey God when they are allowed to consume us and to rule us. And they are inevitable where sin rules or resides in our hearts and in our minds and tempt us. You see, anxiety's temptation, that is not sin. But when we allow it and we tolerate it, it always produces sin. And God wants to console our care and to calm our anxieties so it cannot produce sin in us. That's what Psalm 94, 19 tells us. But Christ cannot care for us until we put our cares on Him. That's what 1 Peter tells us, that Christ and His care motivates us to cast our anxieties on Him so we can receive His comfort in the gospel. And Paul is just applying a kingdom focus to Jesus' words when Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, do not be anxious about your life, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all of these things shall be added unto you. You see, anxiety steals your peace. It tolerates your sin, and it divides your devotion to Christ. Anxiety is not a sign that you're taking care of business as we so often excuse it and tolerate it. Man, I'm just stressed because I got a lot on my plate and I got to deal with it. But rather, anxiety is a sign that your business, or should we say, usually your busyness, is ruling you. Ruling you. Friends, anxiety adds nothing to your life, and it steals all the good of everything. That it infects. So it demands that we repent. It demands that we identify that root cause. 
And that we turn back to the gospel. To let Jesus redeem us through the gospel. Walk in the truth that he has for us. Are you undivided in your devotion to Christ? Are you living obediently? As far as you know. As far as the Spirit is confirming in your heart. Are you available for what God wants to use your life for? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, there's so many things in this world that pound upon our hearts and our minds. To steal our affections and our faith in you. And a sermon like this from a passage such as this is so difficult because it spans every spectrum and penetrates to the deepest issues of our life. And that's where you want to meet us. Not in condemnation, but in love, in grace, in mercy, in forgiveness, with truth. To lead us in your way everlasting. And Lord Jesus, today we need your spirit to work these things out in each of us. Would you move in our hearts and our lives today and do just that? Friends, I told you today was not an easy sermon. And I'm pretty sure it got proved. But it is a hopeful sermon because there is nothing that is beyond the reach of Jesus Christ. And so wherever the Spirit of God is speaking to you today, convicting you of sin, leading you in faithful obedience of righteousness, I'm telling you, the strength of God, whether you can see it, whether you can conceive or fathom to believe it, the strength of God is sufficient for you to persevere in faithful obedience. Will you? Will you trust Jesus? Will you trust His work on the cross?